0: Hi, everybody. My name is Galu Akshul, presenter uh, for the radio brought to you by ARCC on Planet FM. So the rest of the team are not here today, and so we bring you stories from the uh, refugee people. And uh, some of these stories, you might, you, you might take uh, a lesson from them, because these are, uh, are a many stories, stories of journey, struggle, success, and challenges. I hope you will enjoy them.
1: Welcome to Resettled Radio, brought to you by the ARCC, live on Planet FM
2: Stay tuned for current affairs, conversation, interviews, music and more
1: As we explore the perspectives and stories from resettled communities
2: And bring you information from within the resettlement sector Welcome to Resettled Radio. Gatluwak and the team are not able to be in the studio today, so we're playing you stories from Beyond Refuge for the next hour. Uh, The first one is read by broadcaster Lynn Freeman.
1: Originally, I came to New Zealand from Sudan on the 20th of July, 2012. I had lived in a refugee camp in Chad for eight years. I went there with my husband and five kids, two girls and three boys. After six years in the refugee camp, my husband passed away. After my husband's sudden death my daughter and I became very ill. The two years following my husband's passing proved to be a very difficult time for me and this is what led us to being referred to New Zealand as an emergency case for treatment. First, the good thing about New Zealand is the way the government treated us regarding our health problems. Secondly, secondly The simple life provides us with hope to feel our happiness and live with our family together. What worries me in terms of challenges contributing to my life in New Zealand is, first of all, the language problem. I came to New Zealand without knowing any other people, and this provided a real challenge. I speak Arabic, so they bring Iraqi people to translate for me. But the dialect of Iraqi people and my accent do not match. I speak Arabic, so they bring Iraqi people to translate for me, but the dialect of Iraqi people and my accent do not match. Then there are letters from government agencies, for example, Work and Income New Zealand, WINS. Sometimes letters were sent by WINS requesting me to come to an appointment, but no one was able to read that letter for me and tell me the details. So my appointment would pass and my support would be cut. When I was able to go there they would not back pay me for the payment period I missed. This made things very difficult because I am the sole person responsible for payments and I'm not working. I cannot get my head around how the health system works either. For example my daughter was supposed to have an operation on her teeth But she missed it because of language difficulties and misunderstandings. Being the only person who speaks my language in New Zealand has affected my life greatly. Sometimes there were things happening at my children's school, but I would be unable to come through for them. If they get bullied at school because they look different and they come home and complain about it... I don't have the ability to go and explain what my children are feeling to the school staff. I can't help them with their schoolwork at home either. Sometimes there is a family conference at the school. Since I will not be able to go there and listen to my children's reports, often my children will report themselves. I don't know what to do about it. Everything is stopping me from progressing. But in general, I'm fine and learning to cope with things. I really don't have enough knowledge to say what should be put in place to help me. In my specific case, it would help to have someone who could translate for me. If there was some kind of transitioning system or schooling for parents to make sure they understand what the system of education looks like, that would be great. There are times when my children translate for me, but I have doubts and my heart tells me that what has been relayed is not the complete picture of what has been said. It makes me feel very upset and powerless. I often think that if only there was some kind of proper transition for people on my level, because I guess you can place me as a high needs person in terms of language and in terms of navigating the system. I've never been to school but this should not stop me from being part of the society I need to be part of. If there was more help in terms of language this is the most important thing that would make life better for me. Back home I was amongst my extended family. Everyone was there during Idala. Edel- Everyone <clears throat> back home I was amongst my extended family. Everyone was there during al-Adha or other celebrations. I used to go and create an income to support my family. If you have money, you will be able to put your children in school. So comparatively with New Zealand, there is a difference. I acknowledge the government for giving me a house, for giving me benefit and for my children going to school. But I remain in isolation. Back home I stayed with extended family where I could see love and happiness and all the social gatherings. Here in New Zealand I get things that I didn't have back home, and what I had back home I cannot find here. I hope that things will get better, and I will be able to drive to grocery stores and make bill payments on time. It is the basic stuff that matters, but these things are proving to be real challenges. I can only I only pray that the future will be good for my children. I would like my daughter to get married and stay with us and that our family will grow and that my other children can go to school and achieve something good. I am hoping for my kids' future to be filled with beautiful things that I have never had in my life. For my older son, Izzedine, I hope he will finish school and go to university, graduate, and find a job, and afterwards to go and get married back home and bring his new wife here. The education for my children is what I value most, so if they could go through university, get qualifications, and find meaningful jobs, I won't have any other problems. I need to make sure that my grandchildren come for United Family. I need to make sure that my grandchildren come from united families. Most importantly, they need to contribute to New Zealand as a country because this is the country that offers a fair shot in life. I value New Zealand's contribution to my family and in return, future generations need to contribute back to New Zealand society. I love New Zealand more than any other country. One of the best things I love about New Zealand is the freedom of speech. Here you can talk without fear of punishment. Everyone has security guarantees. People are protected by law irrespective of religion, gender or age. Sometimes I remember bad things that happened in my life, and those are the times when I get scared, but I know I am safe here.
3: I am from Ethiopia. I spent the years of my youth liberating my people in Ethiopia. I joined the Tigray People's Liberation Front, a mass rebellion movement established to overthrow the communist dictator, Colonel Mengistu Haile Marjum. Initially Haile Marjum came into power in 1978 after overthrowing the emperor, Haile Lassie, in a bloody coup. After the coup, this communist dictator ruled Ethiopia with an iron fist he used an autocratic military mechanism that he called Derg, and the rest of the world called Red Terror. He committed genocide throughout his tenure in office. He also relied on the Soviet Union for economic plans, which yielded no favorable results. Eventually, Ethiopia was hit by terrible famine. As a result of it, as a result of his dictatorship, Tigray People's Liberation Front and other armed forces of Ethiopia formed an alliance. In May 1991, we were able to overthrow the communist dictator. After removal of the Derg, or Red Terror, regime, all of the armed forces, including Tigray People's Liberation Front, merged and formed a transitional government under the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front in an effort to restore democracy and the rule of law. I was honoured to serve in the transitional government under Ethiopian Prime Minister Malas Zenawi Aris. I was a big man, holding an influential position in Ethiopia, but I was not happy with the government that I served. This was because there were a lot of abuses of the rights we had fought for as a nation. There was no space to speak up. Although the new Prime Minister had made a lot of economic recovery within a short period of time, he failed to deliver democracy. He used to talk about fighting for democracy and civil rights, but there was only lip service. Eventually, my unhappiness with the new regime was noticed by the intelligent apparatus and my basic rights were breached. In 1993, I decided to flee Ethiopia. Bearing in mind that the Ethiopian government was looking for me, I asked one of my relatives to accompany me to Eritrea to avoid suspicion along the way. We both dressed up and acted like farmers and set out to the northern region of Ethiopia We walked for four horrible days to reach the nearest town in Eritrea. When we arrived, I went straight to the Dikemma military base, the largest military base in Eritrea, because I didn't know anybody. I was hoping that I could get a temporary permit that would allow me to stay legally in Eritrea. Luckily, I was able to obtain the temporary permit that I needed. I had to spend days without food because I didn't have any money to buy food. I had a gold necklace and a flashy citizen watch that I could sell, but nobody could buy them. This was because the trade law in Eritrea required that I must have a receipt for anything that I wanted to sell. Unfortunately, I had no receipt. People might have thought that I'd stolen them, so nobody wanted to buy my items. In the end, I became a hungry man in the streets of Asmara, the capital city of Eritrea. I also didn't have a place to sleep. I searched for a place to spend a night... "'but I couldn't find one. "'So I went to the nearest police station to spend the night in jail. "'The police officer in the night duty asked me, "'What do you want?' "'I want to spend a night in jail,' I told him. "'Why? Have you killed anybody?' the police officer asked. "'No, I haven't committed any crime, sir. "'I'm new in town and I don't know anybody. "'I'm flat broke. "'I just want to spend a night here. "'I'll leave tomorrow morning,' I replied.' He noticed that I was very weak, so he opened the door for me. You'll sleep in a woman's cell. There are no female prisoners today, he replied, and directed me to the cell. I consented to the police officer and followed his directions. I slept on the bare, cold floor without a bed or blanket. It was an awful night. No one offered me a place to spend the night except the prison. This is an interesting world, I said to myself as I fell asleep. In the morning I woke up and thanked the police officer for his kindness and then I disappeared into the streets as soon as I stepped out of the prison I met a shoeshiner I have gold necklace and a flashy citizen watch with me and I want to sell them cheap would you be interested I asked oh good I want your watch how much are you selling for it looks expensive the shoeshiner replied 120 Ethiopian burr but I don't have the receipts never mind about the receipts the shoeshiner replied and agreed to buy the flashy citizen watch. I'll give you 20 burr as a tip, I replied, after receiving the 100 burr from him. My life in Asmara was not good. I didn't feel well, and I even had a suicide plan. Eventually, I decided to look for help. I used the 80 burr out of my 100 burr to make a phone call to one of my relatives in Saudi Arabia asking for immediate financial help. My relative immediately reacted to my situation and sent me 1,000 burr within a few minutes I was overexcited I felt like a millionaire happiness was written all over my face my mission was to get out of Africa by any means I wanted to get out of Eritrea because I felt insecure if Ethiopian authorities had ever found me I would have been arrested or killed I had to act quickly I approached several embassies in Asmara to get a visa out of Eritrea however all of the embassies I contacted declined to provide me with a visa It was only the Italian embassy that was willing to issue me a visa but they wanted to charge me US $3,000 and there's no way that I could possibly afford it. So my search for a visa failed terribly. I even went to the American consulate to seek help but the rude American senior employee didn't want to talk to me. He also looked down on me. I asked him, can you help me find where to go to be helped as a refugee? Okay, this guy will take you to the place that deals with people like you. Just follow him, he replied and instructed one of his guys on what to do. There I met Peter Cook, the General Manager of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. I presented my case to him, a political refugee case. He listened to me and said, I will first check your details in Ethiopia to make sure that you indeed ran away for political reasons. He took my details, including my job title, work address, home phone number and address. He wanted to verify whether I could be granted as a political asylum under United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in Eritrea. A few days later, I was called to Peter Cook's office to be briefed about the facts he had found about me in Ethiopia. He said, I agree with you that you have indeed escaped Ethiopia for political reasons, so I consent to provide you the protection you need. As of the 1st of January 1994, I became the first refugee in Eritrea. I was granted political asylum under the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, with available and valid reasons. At that time, Eritrea was the newest nation, and a United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees branch had just been established there. Peter Cook offered me a job, but I turned his offer down because I wasn't interested in working. I just wanted to get out of the vicinity of Ethiopia. It would take no time and energy for Ethiopian intelligence officers to find me in Eritrea. One time, two Ethiopian security operatives even tried to kidnap me in Eritrea's Port Massawa, and I was only able to survive with the help of my cousin. The people at the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees knew my life was at risk, so I was told to go to Sudan in a manner that resembled deportation. I had no choice but to accept to go to Khartoum, Sudan, for my own safety, This was after I'd been living in Eritrea for a year and a half. This had been a difficult time, for I was also dealing with the loss of my son, who had died back in Ethiopia. Life in Khartoum was a bit better than Eritrea. I got a job with an Irish non-governmental organisation in Khartoum to support myself. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees told me that my case was preferred for Australia. Several months had passed without hearing from Australia, After a long waiting period, I finally heard from the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. It's so unfortunate that the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in Sudan was so corrupted. You have to bribe the key United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees employees to get your file processed, said the officer. In 1997, I was offered a chance to resettle in Canada with three other political asylum colleagues. I satisfied all of their requirements. I met all the costs, including the medical checkup. I paid 600000 Sudanese dollars, roughly equivalent to U.S. $1,000. I was medically fit and everything was good. This application looked promising in every single way, but for unknown reasons the case died. By that time I felt like all of my doors were closed. I had heard that political refugee cases were processed urgently and that political asylum seekers usually got cleared for resettlement within a month by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. However, I spent six months staying in Sudan, and while waiting, I lost hope. Then unexpectedly, good luck knocked at my door. An interview with a woman for a chance to resettle in New Zealand. I was blown away with this great news. I didn't expect anything at this point in time. I got ready for the interview. This Kiwi woman who interviewed me was super polite. She felt sorry for me after hearing my story. Political asylum seekers do not have to wait six months without being given a chance to resettle. This category is always urgent, said the Kiwi woman. I finished the interview and she told me, you will be resettling in New Zealand. I was super excited. I spent most of that afternoon reading about New Zealand online because I'd never heard of this tiny, peaceful nation. The resettlement process was also expedited. I came to New Zealand in 2000. I stayed in the Mangere Refugee Resettlement Centre upon arrival. After six weeks, it was time to move into the communities. I wanted to live in Auckland, so I talked to Housing New Zealand. However, my request was declined because I was destined for Wellington. Regardless of the decision on the resettlement location, I didn't really like how the employees of Housing New Zealand treated me in processing my case. They were so rude, but I brushed off their rudeness. Luckily, two Kiwi friends took me to their house to stay with them. This was my first taste of kindness in New Zealand. I liked the country already. I stayed with these two friends in their house in Auckland for two years. Life in Auckland was crazy. It was a new way of life with terrible weather. It was hard to cope. Culture shock is a big thing that affects all immigrants and I was no exception. Although I was lucky to be able to speak English, I had to pay extra attention when listening because people here speak very fast searching for a job is the main headache for newly arrived immigrants I was a certified nurse back home but I was told that my existing knowledge and skills wouldn't matter here especially if I'd never worked in the field in New Zealand in the last five years my nursing diploma was of no use unless I upgraded it so I enrolled for a course and found a job in a supermarket through my supermarket job I earned some money finally after years on the run I was able to support my wife whom I'd left in Addis Ababa, the capital city of Ethiopia I started a process of bringing my family to New Zealand through the family sponsorship program. In 2002, my family joined me in Auckland. I was very happy. I talked to Housing New Zealand again and asked them about accommodation. Surprisingly, they acted differently this time. They provided my family with a house and we stayed together as a family once again after nine painful years apart. I'm currently a self-employed city taxi driver. Taxi driving is good and terrible at the same time. It's good in a way that you're your own boss, but it's terrible in a sense that you can get robbed and the police wouldn't respond to your calls as urgently as possible. Sometimes a passenger wouldn't pay me because of my race and even when I've reported an incident, no actions have been taken. There's not much protection for people of colour in the taxi business. One time a drunken passenger vomited in my taxi but refused to clean it when I asked him to. I called the police, but when you don't talk like a Kiwi, they don't respond to your call quickly. There's a lot of racism in the taxi business, but that doesn't override my love for New Zealand. One good thing about New Zealand is that it provides a lot of democratic spaces. You can breathe out your frustration until your lungs are exhausted. In Africa, the police are viewed as an enemy of the communities, but in New Zealand, police are the best friends of the communities. The healthcare system here is superb. Most people are very polite, although you encounter some rude people like in Housing New Zealand. But people help you when you're in dire need. One time my expectant wife went into labour and called an ambulance. While she was hurrying to the hospital she gave birth on the motorway. She got all the help she needed along the way. There are no such services in Ethiopia, Eritrea or Sudan. New Zealand is my home and my kids have a future here and they know it. I'll take this opportunity to thank Eritrea and Sudan for their hospitality and thank the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees for the Care. And for those who want to immigrate to New Zealand, I'll say that this is a great country to live. But you have to come with a clear goal and program. As long as you respect the law, respect other people and know what you're doing, you'll be good. Some people start messing up on arrival because they don't know what they're looking for in life once they get to New Zealand. They expect everything here to be a bed of roses. Francesca Marciano couldn't have put it better when he said, When you leave Africa... As the plane lifts, you feel that more than leaving a continent, you're leaving a state of mind. Whatever awaits you at the other end of your journey will be of a different order of existence. So be prepared.
2: You're with Resettled Radio and Planet FM 104.6. That was Jessie Mulligan reading that story. You're listening to Stories from Beyond Refuge. The next one is read by actor Jennifer Ward-Leyland.
4: I would like to share just a part of my story in the hope that someone, even just one person, would believe that there is a God who is merciful and faithful in spite of our human faults and wrongdoings. Most of my life has been filled with disappointment and tragedy. Much of it was caused by my own poor choices. I had a very abusive childhood. I experienced rejection, loneliness and physical and emotional abuse. From a very young age, I never had the chance to grow up as a normal child. Even at a young age, I had duties that required me to wake up at 4 a.m. to help with chores before getting ready to go to school. I saw other kids happy and smiling, but I would always isolate myself because I didn't fit in. When I saw kids with their families, I'd begin to ask, where are my parents? What did I do to not feel loved and be needed? I knew who my mother was but never knew why she left me to live with siblings who treated me like a slave however in 1995 when I was 12 years old I was very fortunate to come along with them to New Zealand it was at this time that I started intermediate school that was horrible kids would make fun of me saying things like ooh black ooh I thought that I left all that darkness at home and that I wouldn't have to see this negative side of people again but it seemed to be following me so I began to isolate myself more I would go to the library to read I learned English by listening to a tape player and reading along with the voice technology has improved so much as the world has gone digital after one year in my intermediate school I went to high school That's where my life began. I met the wrong friends and one thing led to another. I was introduced to smoking pot and cigarettes, drinking and hanging out with people much older than me. That's when I discovered that my freedom from pain was to use drugs. Since I never finished high school, I ended up taking course after course As a result, today I'm in a lot of debt from study links because of the silly choices that I made in the past. For 12 years, I was heavily addicted to unwanted things like unsafe dating, drinking and illegal drugs. I once dated a drug addict to the point that I even started to sell drugs. I would get free drugs and would then make a living off the illicit drugs while I was on a sickness benefit. I abused myself and my body in the saddest manner. I went through bad relationships. My world was upside down. I hit rock bottom. Badly depressed, I discovered the people whom I thought were my friends were nowhere to be found. I never knew what I was doing. I was lost and didn't know what to do with my life anymore. I vividly remember in the beginning of 2013, New Year's Eve, I was high and drunk. I overdosed on illegal drugs. It was at this point when I began to know I needed to get some help. I was tired of my life being the same and running away from my memories of pain. I noticed that I was only creating more problems and I knew that I needed to change. I wanted to be someone. I wanted to be a different person. I wanted to get out of this dark hole that I had created. I was molested and I couldn't tell anyone. So I exposed all of my anger and rage onto anyone in my path. I was filled with hate and resentment. My self-esteem was shot. I was so angry I couldn't understand why I continued to live. Yet through it all, in the darkest times of my life, faith stayed by my side, even though I rejected it. Then, about three years ago, I was finally in a place where I had no choice but to focus on my faith. Anyone can make poor choices, but it takes only you to correct them. I learned from my mistakes, and I do not hold grudges against anyone. I'm now happy as I start a new life. I've gotten my life back. Today, I have peace and joy. I have forgiven all those who hurt me and I've asked for forgiveness. I love myself and feel more confident about myself. I have overcome my darkest times. I graduated with a Bachelor of Social Work. I graduated with a Bachelor of Social... I graduated with a Bachelor of Social Work degree from Unitech Institute of Technology in Auckland. I graduated with a Bachelor of Social Work degree from Unitech Institute of Technology in Auckland. I want to be a professional social worker because I want to change lives. I'm currently in the process of becoming a certified social worker in New Zealand, determined to make a difference in the lives of others. I chose to turn to God Even though I felt worthless to the world and in my own eyes, God did something miraculous. He has transformed me because I left my old life behind. I would like to tell you my full testimony, but it would take too long. So, in closing, I'll share a couple of things I've learned. We can look into the eyes of death and darkness, we can be crippled with pain even blind and destitute. But there is nothing that cannot heal. If I had not been allowed to live, I would not be here to experience the blessings I now know in this life. The enemy had robbed me for 29 years, but life poured blessings upon me finally. Also, let me encourage you to make the choice to forgive yourself as well as those who have hurt you. I have learned that forgiveness is the greatest step towards total healing. And remember to never give up. Even if it seems that many doors are closed, there will always be one door open. It's just a matter of searching for it.
2: This is Resettled Radio. Gutlock and the team aren't in today, so you're listening to Stories from Beyond Refuge. That was read by Jennifer Ward-Leyland. And the next story we have for you is read by entertainer Frankie Stevens.
0: I am originally from the Republic of South Sudan, which separated from Sudan on July 9, 2011, after I had already resettled in New Zealand as a new settler. 21 years of the deadliest civil wars on the African continent occurred from 1983 to 2005, resulting in Sudan's split into two independent countries. Millions of people died. Tragically, South Sudan entered its own civil war two years after it gained its independence from Sudan, and this war is still ongoing. Only God knows when the fighting will stop. South Sudan is rich in oil, minerals and other natural resources, but poor in infrastructure. People only know and hear about the war side of South Sudan, not its beauty and natural resources. I am the eldest son in a family of five boys and three girls. My father was a well-known builder in our area. My mother was a housewife, but both of them were also farmers. Pan Yidwe, Pardu, our village where I grew up, is not far from Malakal, capital of the Upper Nile State. I always traveled between Pan Yidwe, Padu, and Malakal. My father was a traditional Sholok who held very strong Shalok values, norms and beliefs. Shalok is one of South Sudan's 64 tribes. We the Shalok people live along the west and east bank of the White River Nile and Sabad River. We have been ruled by a divine king for centuries. We hold strong customs. Our Shalok king, which we call Reth, is the head of the tribe. Although the Shalok are settled communities along the River Nile, we are pastoralists. We keep herds of cattle, sheep and goats, but largely invest in subsistence farming. My family owned a thousand hectares of land with cows, goats and sheep. The community viewed my father as a rich man and treated him with high regard. I lived in Malakau for school purposes and would only come to Panyidwe Paju village during the school holidays. I was responsible for my books in Malakal, but I immediately assumed the responsibility of our livestock when I was in Panyidwe Paju. I grazed cows, goats and sheep for several hours in the open fields of Savanar grasslands, while making sure that the naughty calves didn't stray from their mothers. I would keep my eyes open for any wild animal that may attack them. With my traditional spears, I had to face any lion that may attempt to attack the cows. If I lost one to any wild animal, I would be severely punished. This is where my responsibility started as a young boy. Life was simple, but happy. Life turned ugly in 1983 when the Second Sudanese Civil War broke out between the government forces and South Sudanese armed rebels known as Saddam's People's Liberation Movement. The Sudan People's Liberation Movement was fighting for an independent South Sudan, but the government in Khartoum was determined not to allow Sudan to break up into two countries. The Sudanese government sent its military combat forces to Malakal to fight Sudan People's Liberation Movement and turned all schools into military barracks. On the other side of the river, which is adjacent to Malakal, was home to armed rebels. All the Shalok villages were made into military barracks by combative forces. We became displaced people in our own homes. No school, no farming and no animal grazing. The insecurity was on the rise. Sudan went through two civil wars. The first Sudanese civil war was fought in 1955 to 1975 and the second was fought from 1983 to 2005. These wars caused the loss of more than 3.5 million lives and many millions of displaced people. One life lost during the Civil War included my grandfather, Ajako, who was killed in 1971. My father was killed in the Second Civil War in 1989. The wars took a huge toll on our family. As a result of two opposing military forces occupying entire communities, South Sudan was not safe anymore. The government of Sudan and rebels were fighting in our land, the Shalak land, and the results were devastating. Civilians were killed indiscriminately. Women were raped. Even girls as young as nine years of age were not spared. The rebels were carrying out a massive recruitment of young people against their will. The warring armies committed atrocities. In this political atmosphere, my father believed that there was no future for me in Malakal. He didn't want me to be conscripted into the army of any side. One day, my father told me, Son, I have gone through the first South Sudanese civil war in my life and believe the answer for all these military conflicts in South Sudan is education. I want you to go to Sudan, where it is more peaceful, and stay with my brother. Moving to North Sudan at the age of 13 meant vulnerability and although I would be an internally displaced person there, life would be better in Khartoum than it would have been in Malakal. I went to Northern Sudan with my young brother, William, and my maternal grandmother. We settled in Hajj Abdullah and lived there for nine years as a displaced minor. I started my education there but it was difficult to cope with the different cultures in one country. Schools in North Sudan used Arabic as a language of instruction. There had been more English classes and less Arabic in Malakal. So I had to learn more Arabic. Education in Sudan was more about achievement, with a high level of competition among classmates in the Sudan education system. It took me a few years to improve my Arabic language so that I could pass my classes with good grades. While in school, I also worked in a restaurant. The money I got supported my younger brother and me. I saved some money and started a small business. My father had taught me how to fix doors and windows and residential houses, so I was making money in a construction business while teaching part-time as well. The year of 1989 was not a good year for me. I received bad news about my father. He had been killed by a newer tribe militia who occupied our district of Dolib Hill. They had killed other relatives as well. I felt so shocked to hear the tragic news. As I was going through the grieving process, I remembered his words of encouragement. He used to advise me to take school seriously, as it will be my future. He wanted me to go to university, so I decided to put education first in my life. A big part of his legacy was the value he placed on education, and as the eldest son of my family, I thought getting an education was the best way to respect my father. I still believe that education is everything in my life, and that through education, I could live my father's dream, not only in school, but also in my daily life. The system in northern Sudan treats South Sudanese people badly for being Christians. There has not been freedom of religion since Sudan was turned into an Islamic state in 1985. In North Sudan, you have to be a Muslim to receive equal treatment. If you are South Sudanese, you will be treated as a second-class citizen. On August 3, 2000, I went to Syria. I was pursuing educational opportunities while trying to find job opportunities as well. I was lucky to get a few construction jobs to support my siblings and my mother back in Sudan. As I got used to Syrian culture, I got a good job. I was employed as an assistant manager at Khalil al-Daya, Oriental shop in Syria. It was a big shop, and I worked seven days a week, except for three hours I used for church service on Sundays. I worked my bones off to maintain myself. Through this job, I was able to pay my bills. Life improved a bit. With the little money I made, I was stepping into my father's shoes. As the firstborn in the family, I needed to fulfill my role. I must take care of my whole family. In 2001, I was nearly deported back to Sudan against my will by the Syrian authorities. The Sudanese government didn't want any South Sudanese to stay in Syria on the grounds that the South Sudanese people may sabotage the government in Khartoum. The Sudanese government ordered, through its bilateral relations with Syria, to deport all South Sudanese who lived in Syria without a stay visa. Whether they were under the protection of the United Nations or not, that was a huge number to deport. All South Sudanese protested against the decision and urged the United Nations to protect the refugees. We were all rounded up and crammed into Syrian military barracks awaiting deportation. Everyone was a prisoner. I stayed in the Syrian prison for three months and ten days under inhumane treatment. It took me five years to get refugee status under the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees local office in Damascus. The process to claim protection under the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in Syria was a long one. Patience and perseverance were the guiding principles that kept my head up. In 2005, five months after getting refugee status, I was asked to resettle in New Zealand. This came as an emergency case. I felt so happy about this decision because this would also mean that I would be able to receive further education in New Zealand and find employment opportunities. I finally had hope that this could be the beginning of a better life for me and my family. In 2005, I arrived in Auckland, New Zealand. I came with my two daughters and my lovely wife, Mary. We stayed in Mangari Refugee Resettlement Centre for six weeks, after which time we also received an orientation programme organised by the New Zealand Government. When I moved into the community, I realised that things were not going to be as easy as I thought. I was faced with the reality of resettlement challenges. It was very hard to understand and navigate basic resettlement issues such as neighbourhood connections, networking and access to available services. Fortunately, there were some levels of government support from refugee services and social workers to deal with some of these challenges. For the first six months, Jeff and Nikki Mando were our first New Zealand family contacts from the Refugee Service Volunteers Programme, and my family and I were lucky to have them. The place that made me love New Zealand was Mangarei Bridge Mountain. I used to go to this mountaintop every day, enjoying the view of Auckland. I loved it because it gave me a sense of belonging, and I knew that I wanted to stay in New Zealand. I needed to find employment as soon as possible to comply with the work and income New Zealand policy. I felt a lot of pressure from them to find a job. One day, a staff member told me, you need to find a job. However, getting employed was a problem. All of the potential employers asked me three questions. Do you have New Zealand qualifications? Do you have New Zealand work experience? Do you have a professional network in New Zealand? And I thought to myself that these people must be joking. How do I get these things? Can anyone get New Zealand qualifications, work experience or connect to New Zealand professional networks in a matter of months as a new arrival? Obviously the answer was no. I have just arrived in the country. From that time, I started to challenge myself. I was determined to improve my situation. Some questions stuck in my mind though. Why was there no job seekers support system in place to help newcomers find jobs? In 2005, I enrolled in a language and literacy skills program at Tamakiki Raro Training. I also took free computer courses at Mangere Town Centre. After completing these courses, I enrolled in an employment skill English course at Manukau Institute of Technology. Even though I could speak English, I also wanted to learn everyday conversational English. I couldn't speak with a Kiwi accent, and I knew I needed to speak better English. One time in our class, the English teacher gave me a newspaper. I really tried my best to find a job, but I was never called for a job interview, whether I applied online or in person. Later on, I found out that the New Zealand employers didn't hire me, not because I didn't have the skills for jobs, but because my name was different. The fact that I didn't have a professional network in New Zealand and a lack of New Zealand work experience added to my burden of trying to find a job. After finishing the Employment Skilled English course, I planned to start my own business, so I enrolled in automotive engineering courses. I worked very hard and completed levels 2, 3, and 4 in automotive engineering. While I was studying the automotive engineering courses, I also enrolled for a national certificate in computing levels 2, 3, and 4 at Te Whananga or Aotearoa, which also included a national certificate in first-line management and leadership. Between semesters, there were holiday breaks. During these holidays, I did not receive any student allowance, so I had to go back to Work and Income New Zealand and ask for financial support. I then found out that I was eligible to apply for student hardship benefits during the holiday period. Working in different mechanical workshops for two years as part of my school study was the first New Zealand work experience I got. And because work experience is not always paid work, the work and income department wasn't convinced I needed support. I was wondering why there weren't any agencies available to new immigrants to help them with the skills they needed on arrival to ensure they could enter the workforce straight away. Many people come with skills. It's just a matter of upgrading to match their skills to New Zealand standards. People learn on the job. Just give them a chance. I registered with employment agencies to find any type of labour work. After applying with a Deco Employment, an agent called me in to take the test for eligibility to work in New Zealand. I passed the test and was sent to Countdown at Favona Road, Mangere in Auckland. I underwent five days' training. I was trained how to use all types of equipment related to my work. It was a new experience for me. And when during the training a radio machine gave instructions on what and what not to do, it was funny. But an enjoyable experience. Still, I was determined to get a better education. Although I got a full-time job opportunity, I was looking for a part-time job to continue my studies. I quit the job because they gave me two choices, either work a full-time job or go to school, and I chose to continue with my education and training. My colleagues and my manager didn't want me to leave, but I told them finishing my education has always been the priority. After completing my study and community work, I was able to tick the boxes for New Zealand qualifications, New Zealand work experiences, and New Zealand professional network. I was very lucky when Auckland Resettled Community Coalition organized a workshop for leaders with Unitech. That was in 2008, and it was called Meetings Facilitation Skills for Leaders, facilitated by Ali McNichol. After training, she gave me the opportunity to join not-for-profit management, and I am thankful for that since it moved me in a new direction. Initially, I didn't enrol in the programme supported by a scholarship at the UNITEC Institute of Technology because I was already studying a full-time course at Manukau Institute of Technology. It was not until 2009 that I enrolled for the not-for-profit management programme at UNITEC. The programme could have been completed over 2 to 10 years, but I completed the training within 2 years. It was very hectic. This programme added value to my New Zealand qualifications. After getting all of these qualifications, I had a much better idea of what I really wanted to do and what I needed in order to do it. I started to see the bigger picture for my career. I was able to translate the knowledge I gained into my daily life. I started working for communities. It was my educational experience that led me into community work. I was already an active member of Auckland Resettled Community Coalition. So I used my skills from my non-profit management training for community development work. In Damascus, Syria, I was Secretary General for the South Sudanese community and Chairman of the Shalok community. I came to New Zealand with the same spirit. I actively engaged the South Sudanese community members to create activities that could reduce isolation and loneliness in the community and encouraged others to get to know one another more. The majority of community members are single mothers whose husbands lost their lives in Sudanese civil wars. So community support is very important. The first administrative work I did in support of community members was to organize a World Refugee Day celebration at Potters Park on June 20, 2006. It was a very successful event which saw the establishment of the South Sudanese soccer team. It was because of such events that South Sudanese community members saw the need to continue engaging with one another. Our community had been inactive, but it was time to put new life into it. We called for a major community election in which Peter Kennedy, who worked at the Mangari Refugee Resettlement Centre at the time, helped the South Sudanese community to use the Mangali Refugee Resettlement Centre conference room. I was chosen to lead the community, but I chose to serve in the capacity of Deputy Chairman on the grounds that I was new to New Zealand. As Deputy Chairman, I established a lot of networking with Auckland resettlement sectors. Our community became a member of Auckland Resettled Community Coalition in 2006. Within the community, malice started arising around difficulties and challenges of raising South Sudanese children in New Zealand. Families started to complain about the negative behaviour of their children. After consultation with mothers and as a community, we agreed to have some parental programs. We were lucky enough to have the assistance of Alisa Wilson from Auckland Regional Health Services and Jenny Jennifer from Ministry of Social Development. We also received funding and I ran the parental project for five years. As well, I introduced a healthy eating campaign and turned it into a healthy eating and healthy living program. These programs were aimed at bringing the community together and both yielded positive results. As a South Sudanese leader, I was a representative at Auckland Resettled Community Coalition from 2006 to 2011. In 2008, Auckland Resettled Community Coalition had a strategic direction plan and I was delegated to manage youth projects. I was responsible for youth issues and supported them within the Auckland Resettled Community Coalition. The youth project I administered gave me hands-on insights into the diversity of the Auckland Resettled Community Coalition's organisation. Engaging with individual community leaders and youth leaders was a great opportunity for me. I learned a lot from the youth and their community leaders. In 2011, after graduating with a graduate diploma in not-for-profit management, I worked as a youth worker for nearly four years with the Refugee Youth Action Network. My roles there were to help young people to find jobs and to help them with appropriate educational plans. Working with young people from refugee backgrounds, new Kiwis, gave me an opportunity to utilize the diversity of people from refugee backgrounds through mentoring, advising, and listening to their stories. In March 2013, I was elected chairperson of Auckland Resettled Community Coalition. and during this period I revitalized the organization's vision and mission with the support of my good colleagues. While reflecting positively on the organisation's journey of voluntary work, I was determined to remain resilient and confident in helping the resettled communities to settle well and contribute to Auckland society. The objective has been to deliver leadership, advocacy, research and information sharing and networking by working with Iwi government agencies, non-governmental agencies, United Nations, High Commissioner for Refugees and International Networks. I have learned so much on the needs of the resettled communities and as an active member at the national level was elected co-chair for the Refugee Sector Strategy Alliance. This gave me another opportunity to travel to Geneva for the annual tripartite consultations on resettlement in 2016. I also represented the New Zealand Refugee Sector Strategy Alliance and resettled communities across New Zealand. These roles in local, regional, national and international levels have given me deeper understanding of the resettlement sector and have kept my spirits high. While working at ARCC, I have been observing and hearing from community members experiencing discrimination and racism in employment, housing and work and income New Zealand. I experienced some of what they were trying to say, so know that this is an area where I can put my experience and skills to use in helping with these issues. Here is a story of something that happened to me. It demonstrates that a form of racism exists and emphasizes the need to change people's thinking around resettled communities in New Zealand. It was on Sunday morning on the 17th of July 2016 when I went to a family doctor at Town Centre East Tamaki Healthcare. I walked into the reception and greeted the reception with good morning. The receptionist replied back, good morning, how can I help you? I said, I came to see a family doctor. I have a pain in my left hand side for a week now. He asked me, are you a refugee? I said, no. He asked me again, Can you give me your family name, date of birth, and first name? I gave him what he asked. He responded back to me, You are not registered with us here. I asked him, How many times should I re-register each year? He answered, When you register once, you don't need to re-register again. I replied, I have been registered with East Tamaki Healthcare since 2005. My last visit was December 2012 when I traveled to South Sudan. My family members have been registered here too. Could you please explain more to me so that I can better understand your new system? He asked, where are you from and what is your ethnicity? I answered, I am from Mangari Bridge and my ethnicity is South Sudanese. He said, you are from South Africa? I responded with a question. How would you know if I am from South Africa if I am not registered with you? Finally, he said, I found your name under the refugee category in our system and it says you are from South Africa. I asked him again, are you relying on your system or listening to what I am telling you? I am giving you my details. You should be listening to the details that I'm giving you now and correct what is wrong in your system. I continued questioning him. Do you understand the meaning of the word refugee? He didn't answer my question. I said to him, I have seven members in my family, three born Kiwi kids and two daughters born overseas. All are New Zealanders. My wife and I are New Zealand citizens. Why are we under the refugee category? I also took the opportunity to explain to him what it means to be a refugee. If your system is labeling people according to their backgrounds or the way people look, then the system is wrong. People come to New Zealand from refugee backgrounds, but they are no longer refugees once they have settled. They are New Zealand permanent residents on their arrival, and they are eligible to get their citizenships after five years. Your system should treat people with respect and dignity. And as ordinary New Zealand residents, it doesn't matter what their backgrounds or socioeconomic status are, It's not correct to discriminate against someone just because of their backgrounds. I started wondering, where is New Zealand's human rights standards? I have been in New Zealand about 11 years now, yet I am still being called a refugee. Why should I remain a second-class citizen in my new home and the country I love so much? I was given a second chance in life to live in peace. And yet the health system is rejecting me and treating me as if I come from another planet. I reject anything to do with racism and discrimination. I cannot say yes to things that are not fine with me. Telling the truth is one of my cultural values. I am not a troublemaker, but a changemaker and a voice for the voiceless. I have always been a proud New Zealander, regardless of my refugee background. The truth needs to be told. That's what makes us stronger and makes us who we are as a nation. I was raised in a culture where one is required to tell the truth. I have to tell the truth even if it hurts. I am now considering studying again for a master's degree in community development. I want to keep my father's dream alive. He wanted me to get a quality education before he departed this earth. I want readers to learn something from my story. I want to advise those who are struggling with jobs and life in general to pause and check the missteps. Help yourself first in order to find someone else who can help you. Seek out the opportunities and seize them as they won't wait for you. At this point in my journey of achievement, I am proud to have accomplished successful outcomes throughout my struggle for a better life. I feel that I am indeed walking in the shoes of my father and keeping his dream alive.
2: That was Frankie Stevens reading another story from Beyond Refuge. That is all, those are all the stories we have for today. We're nearly at the end of the hour. If you're interested in those stories, they come from a book, Beyond Refuge, that was put together by the ARCC. It contains stories of 12 individuals that arrived in New Zealand as refugees, uh, and the book also contains portraits by photographer Nando Azevedo, and they're stunning portraits. There was an exhibition done a couple of years back now um, showing those. I'm not sure how many copies of the book are still available, but it's always worth uh, asking the ARCC if you'd like to get your hands on one. You can do that by visiting their Facebook, ARCC Facebook, or going to arcc.org.nz. And, of course, you can catch Resettled Radio again on planetaudio.org.nz forward slash resettled radio. Gatlawak and the team will be back with you next week, but thank you today for enjoying Stories Beyond Refuge, and we look forward to you joining us again next week.